Hello, Duke fans. Before we get started today, just wanted to quickly update you. We recorded most of this audio on Wednesday the 23rd. We're not getting it out to you until Sunday the 27th for a variety of technical and scheduling challenges. So uh, we hope you enjoy this somewhat stale but hopefully not spoiled episode of the DVR podcast. Hello there, Duke fans, and welcome to episode 323 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. We just had a show with Lynn Simon, who we hope you listened to. It was a great, fascinating interview on the Supreme Court ruling in the NCAA case uh, versus Alston, and also just name, image, and likeness, and how that's going to be shaped. Very fascinating interview. Check that out. But on this show, we're going to be discussing the NBA draft in the process of selecting John Shire as Duke's next head coach. Before we do all of that, Donald Wine here, the proud owner of the number one pick in the NCAA draft and your host for the show. NBA draft. Again, you said NCAA, you mean the NBA draft. I don't care which draft it is. The number one, <laughs> we're picking all of them. Uh, well, actually, we only pick one guy. We know who's going to be. But we'll talk about all that. Jason, you just heard. Jason Evans is here. Sam Clyde is here. Uh, Jason, hello. I know we, we're going to skip most of the usual stuff, but how do you feel about my Pistons getting number one pick in the draft? Uh, I don't care. I don't care because my Hawks are in the <laughs> Eastern Conference Finals. Hey, Seth that's Curry, also cool, too. I'm, I'm sorry to Seth Curry, who was a great for the Philadelphia 76ers. But if you had told me uh, it, even a week ago that the Atlanta Hawks were going to be in the Eastern Conference Finals, I would have called you crazy. And I want to point something out in January. My son, who was in a legal jurisdiction when he did this, my son purchased a $10 ticket on the Atlanta Hawks to win the Eastern Conference. It was $10 to pay $600 on the Hawks to win the Eastern Conference. When he bought, bought this ticket in January, I said, well, there goes $10. <laughs> uh, and now he is four wins away from having that reality happen for him. Um, it would be really cool and really fun if it happened. And he's such a good Hawks fan that I said, you should hedge it. You know, when you have a ticket like that, that has made it so far along the line, you go, okay, I'll hedge it. I'll, I'll make a, you know, a couple hundred dollar wager on the Milwaukee Bucks. And that way, no matter what happens in the series, I make something. He's refusing to hedge. He's like, dad, I believe in the Hawks. So Atta I love boy. my son for that. Go with your gut. He's a bad investor, but he's a good fan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's why I don't bet on my teams. Um, uh, you just heard Sam Klein, Sam. Uh, how are you doing today? I know, again, we're, we're skipping the, most of the stuff, but react to what, what the Hawks, the Pistons, the Wizards, whatever. The, the Wizards are, are at the sort of right in the middle of the Eastern Conference. So there's nothing interesting that happens around <laughs> around combine time for them. They're not they're obviously not still in the playoffs and uh, and they're not getting they're not getting Kate Cunningham. So, you know, they'll just keep they'll just keep chugging along. I guess I'm supposed to care about the Boston Celtics now that I live here. And uh, and the Boston Celtics seem to still be in good shape to to retool for next season and hopefully come at the Hawks. Uh, I, yeah. I, my my NBA affiliations are are more to the to the Duke players than they are <laughs> to any individual franchise, as they should. And that's a great segue. I, while the Detroit Pistons are not going to be selecting a Duke player with the number one pick, that honor will all all likelihood go to Kate Cunningham. We did have the NBA Combine that started earlier this week, and, and Jason's kind of been keeping track of the Duke players. He has some important information that may seem 
you know, not so interesting, but they're very interesting in the NBA world, especially when you're talking about how to grade these players. So Jason, take it away on what you've learned from the combine thus far. Yeah, we're about to discuss quarter inches, half inches, inches, and things like that, because, and, th- and that may seem like nothing, but it's really important. So um, this week at the combine, they measured everybody. Now they're also going to be doing, they'll be playing games and doing drills and things like that. But as crazy as it sounds, the measurements are really, really important to people's draft stock. And I want to point out um, that everybody showed up for these measurements, except for a couple guys, the guys at the very, very top of the draft, Cade Cunningham, Jalen Green, Isaiah Jackson, Jonathan Kaminga, um, Evan Mobley, and Jalen Suggs did not bother to show up to even be measured at the combine because all those guys know that they're going in the lottery. And in fact, you know, five, six of those guys know that they're going in the top five or six picks. (laughs) The other guy who didn't show up, and this was really interesting, and it relates to Duke and the ACC, Dayron Sharp of UNC didn't even show up for the NBA combine. And some foolish Carolina fans thought, ooh, this means maybe he's thinking about coming back. No, no. Let me let me allow folks to understand. He has signed with an agent. Dayron Sharp is not coming back. The reason he did not show up for the combine, I am almost certain, is that some team has promised Dayron Sharp that they will take him with a first round draft pick. And, and they said to him, don't go to the combine. Don't work out for other teams. We got you. We're taking you at 25, 28, whatever it may be, um, which is a good spot because a lot of people were projecting Sharp as a early, mid, second rounder. Getting first round money is way better than second round money, let me tell you. And so Sharp is following that team's instructions and he did not bother to show up as a result. But it's still a gamble. So just to be clear out there. Yeah, it, it is. Know, Sound bites are not sworn testimony, and especially when it comes to the NBA draft. So, you know, Dayron Sharp may have gotten a promise from some team, and it's unclear what team that would be, but it's still kind of a, a gamble to not show up and say, hey, you know, or work out with other teams because a lot can happen between now and when the NBA draft occurs. There are 50 first round picks walking around right now. <laughs> exactly. Uh, in any event, so I want to I move on from Dayron, and, and I want to talk. First about wingspan, which was one of the things that was measured at the combine. The NBA loves wingspan. I mean, I'm telling you, wingspan is a really big deal because it, it determines a lot of whether or not you can get your hands out there and, and, and deflect passes and, and interrupt dribblers and things like that. It's a key measurement in whether or not a guy is going to be a good defender. Um, in NBA terms, if you have a uh, wingspan relative to, to your height of plus six inches, if your wingspan is six inches more than your height, that is considered elite length. That's what the NBA is really looking for. There were 15 players at the combine who were plus six or better. And guys among them was Duke's own DJ Stewart, who measured out at plus 6.25 in his wingspan relative to his height. That's the good news for DJ. The bad news for DJ is that when they measured his height without shoes, and this is what the NBA cares about, because everybody can, you know, you can put lifts in your shoes and stuff. DJ's height without shoes was just six foot and three quarter inches. Six zero and three quarters. That is small. He is less than six one. It is going to be really hard, probably impossible, for him to play two guard, shooting guard in the NBA at less than six one. It's just not done. In fact, most NBA point guards are more like six three, six four. So we were talking a minute ago, or, or, or recently, about Cam Reddish. Uh, I think you guys were, yes. were were talking about him on the Hawks. Cam Reddish is also technically a shooting guard, and he's like six eight. Exactly. Um, now, it's worth noting 
that on the combine, when the combine lists all the players, they also list their position. And they were listing DJ Stewart as a point guard. So the NBA is going to be drafting DJ Stewart on doing something that he never did for a single second at Duke. I don't recall him playing point guard at all last year. It was Jeremy Roach, you know, and Jordan Goldwire, and even Wendell Moore. But I don't recall DJ Stewart playing any point guard, but that's what the NBA is looking for him to do. So, but, but regarding DJ, he had elite length, but not height. Height is an issue for him. So on the opposite end of the spectrum, we talked about these guys who are plus six inches or more. On the opposite end of the spectrum, there were three players, only three players who had a wingspan that was one inch or less longer than their height. We're talking about T-Rexes here, guys who have really short arms and long bodies. And gentlemen, I, I unfortunately must report that one of those three players with pathetic wingspan was Matthew Hurt. Matthew Hurt measured six, eight and a half for his height, and his wingspan is just six, nine and a half. Now, no one expects Matthew Hurt to be a great defender in the NBA. He is going to the NBA, hopefully to shoot three pointers, which is what he did so effectively at Duke. But if you're an NBA team and you're looking at drafting Matthew Hurt, you're like, dude, yeah, but be clear, a six, nine wingspan. I don't care how tall or short you are is a lot of wingspan. So that's there true. are things that there are things when you're talking about it, you know, you can say, okay, well, this guy doesn't, he's not going to be blocking shots, but that wasn't ever what he was charged to do, but he still has a long wingspan. It's just, you know, they have algorithms and, and mathematicians and statisticians and, and just common sense people who, who, who are not in the room who say, oh, well, that's, that's tiny. There's no way he's going to make it as a four guard because he only has a six, nine wingspan. JJ Reddick is like six two and has a wingspan that's like five ten, and <laughs> right. he he's managed to to make it this far. So work hard, make shots, and and you'll go a long way. So before I finish on wingspan, I just want to mention Jalen Johnson of Duke um, was plus five on his wingspan, not elite, but still very good. Jalen measured at six seven and three quarters with a wingspan of seven feet and a quarter inch. Um, you know, so that that's that's a nice nice spot for for Jalen in terms of wingspan and stuff like that. I'm going to get back to him in one second, but before we finish on wingspan, I did want to note something very quickly. Uh, there is a name you're going to hear very, very early in the NBA draft, and that is Scotty Barnes from Florida State. Um, Scotty Barnes had the, the highest wingspan relative to height of anyone in the uh, NBA combine. It was plus eight. Scotty measured six, seven with a seven, three wingspan. Scotty's already an elite prospect. I'm telling you, NBA teams saw that 7-3 wingspan on a guy who's going to be a point guard in the NBA, and they are drooling right now. Scotty Barnes will be going in the first half of the lottery for sure, and I won't be shocked if someone, someone reaches on him. He, he, could, he could go number five, as high as number five, maybe number six, but that is like crazy wingspan on a point guard. I saw what you did there. Reach. Someone's going to reach to take him. That was pretty good. <laughs> And 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 we would say more about Scotty Barnes, but but Duke didn't get a chance to to face him this year. That was one of the bummers. One of the many bummers of this season is that our one game against Florida State got canceled for COVID, so we didn't get to see any of our guys go up against him. It's a pity. It's a, so the the other combine stuff I wanted to mention really quickly because I've talked about a lot of things. Uh, there was a cool little uh, thing I noted. They measure guys' hands, widest and longest hands. Gentlemen, the widest and longest hands of anyone at the combine belong to Jalen Johnson. Jalen has a 10 and a half inch wide hand and a nine and three quarter inch long hand. He can palm a basketball really easily. That's right. Yeah. So, so I thought that was interesting. 
And, and the other thing I wanted to mention about Jalen was um, he came in with just a 4.5% body fat measurement. He was one of the leanest players in the combine. Since he left Duke, it is clear that Jalen Johnson has been working out hard. He has not put on any fat at all. Um, Matthew Hurt, I'm uh, uh, unfortunately more bad news for Matthew Hurt, has the second worst body fat percentage of anyone at the combine, 15.2% body fat on Matthew Hurt. Hey guys, can you guess? It's an ACC player. Can you guess who has the worst body fat percentage of anyone at the combine? We said that Dayron Sharp was not at the combine. No, right. Dayron Sharp was not that. That would have been a good guess. Raekwon May there as a coach. Raekwon Gray of Florida State. Raekwon Gray comes in at 17.3% body fat. He weighs, he weighed 268 pounds. That's a big boy. (laughs) That's just that's just opportunity, baby. (laughs) Again, again, that is something where I look at that player and I go, I don't like. Zion Williamson probably wasn't, you know, 10% body fat or whatever like that. But people looked at him and said, you know what? I, I still want him. I still want him number one. Yeah, I, Raekwon we can, we can play. We can make him run enough. Uh, he can run enough suicides to to get rid of that body fat. But if he can if he can defend and he can shoot, who cares? Okay, so rounding out my combine stat stuff just really quickly, just because, uh, you know, the questions out there. Matthew Hurt weighed in at 232.4 pounds. He was the 10th heaviest player at the combine. DJ Stewart weighed in 162.2 pounds. He was the second lightest player at the Combine. And just a couple other things I wanted to note really quickly because I thought they were interesting. Marcus Bagley, Marvin Bagley's brother, um, was at the Combine. He only measured six foot six. Now, he's sort of projected as an NBA power forward. Six six is really small for a power forward. And I, I, I think that's a measurement that's going to hurt him. And then the other one was, folks, if you watch the NCAA tournament, Davion Mitchell of Baylor, was the best player in the entire tournament. Really impressive season. He only measured at six feet even, which is really small for the NBA. His wingspan is just six, four and a half. I think that could hurt his stock a little bit. Teams may be a little hesitant, but man, I think his speed and explosiveness uh, should really translate to the NBA. But I just want to, I thought that was interesting. Davion Mitchell was the second smallest player at the combine at six feet exactly. Frankly, having watched him dominate the final four, I don't care what height he is, that dude can play. It's a game of quarter inches and half inches, ladies and gentlemen. That is the NBA, and that is the NBA Combine. We'll obviously we're going to have much more on the Combine as we move forward in and the NBA Draft as we move into the summer. We're going to take a very quick break. On the other side, our next coach is in this room. Who said it and why? After this. And we are back. And like I mentioned in the teaser before the break, this quote, our next coach is in this room. That was said by Chris Carrawell when Coach K told the coaching staff that he was going to retire after this upcoming season. And when Chris Carrawell said that, he looked at John Shire. That is part of an incredible article that's very insightful about the Duke coaching search. It's in The Athletic. Brendan Marks and Seth Davis collaborated on this piece, and it gets into how the coaching process went, how it remained a secret this entire time, what the process was like for John Shire, and again, how it was his colleague, Chris Carroll, that kind of initiated the, uh, the 
idea that John Shire could be the next coach at Duke. Hey, hey Donald, are, are we are we one hundred percent sure that Carroll wasn't talking about himself? <laughs> uh, we don't know, but it, it, it sounds like when no, everything happened, they looked right at him. But and uh, the, Sam, the, I was going to say the great thing in that article is when when Carowell mentions that Coach K looks at John Shire and says. Yeah, I was John. I was hoping to have a conversation with you in just a little bit. <laughs> so right. It's, it's clear Coach K was thinking the same way Sewell was. Yeah. So, I mean, if you guys don't have the athletic, get it. Read this article. It's powerful stuff. Sam, I want to start with you. Give me your takeaways, what you saw uh, from this article that you took away. And really, just it, it's very rare to have an article that has so much that you learn from it, but we had one in this case. Well, I. I did want to note, I believe that this is the article that finally tipped Jason towards subscribing to The Athletic. So it is. Uh, this is so, correct. So, yes. So yes. Things, things you can learn. Uh, one thing that I found so fascinating about this was how well it seems like everybody at Duke kept the secret. Like If you go read the article, it sounds like it was weeks of Coach K telling the staff that he's, he's going to retire and that they're starting a search, and then that they went through this whole search process and it and it is much more detailed than i had sort of assumed it was given how given how quickly the announcement came from the time that the rumor started which was and the, the first rumor was basically jeff goodman tweeting that coach k is stepping down at the end of next season and john shire is likely going to be the next coach and the announcement came a couple hours after that officially from duke i figured when we talked about this that like all right Maybe they didn't do a whole former formal search process, but it sounds like they did hire a search firm. I don't know why they needed to do that. It's not like they, they had any shortage of candidates that were so obvious, but that Shire went through multiple rounds of interviews with folks running the athletic department that um, uh, senior deputy uh, athletic director, John Jackson was, was running that. Nina King was involved, some other administrators and president price and the board of trustees. All these people were, were part of the process to ultimately just, just promote John Shire out of his current job into the next job up. So it, it looks like from the outside, it looks like not a whole lot happened here, but but it does sound like there was a lot. And that along the way, nobody talked about it. Nobody said anything to the media, at least. And if they did, nobody in the media uh, felt like it was worth reporting uh, for, for whatever reasons. So that just tells you how how tight the uh, the whole process is here at Duke and that and that none of it came out. I was most fascinated by that. The other thing that I, I found interesting, and it sort of ties to the conversation that the two of you were having in my absence the other day, was about Chris Carrawell getting promoted to associate head coach. And something that I've been thinking about in the wake of John Shire's promotion announcement is that Shire's only 33 years old, and Nolan Smith is only 33 years old. Like These guys are young guys to be running a program that Look, when when Mike Shashevsky was hired into this job, he was this age and didn't have a bunch of old heads around him running the show. But Duke basketball in 1980 is nothing like Duke basketball in 2021. And I think part of of keeping Chris Carowell around and, and promoting him into the associate position was having a guy who's a little bit more experienced. Like Carowell hasn't been a head coach, as you guys were talking about, but he has been an assistant for a lot longer than the two of them have. He's worked at other programs. He's worked on the women's program. So he he knows a little bit more about sort of what's going on and and can connect maybe to the older coaches. So while I do think there's a possibility that they'll want to bring in an even older retiring head coach. I know you guys were talking about Johnny Dawkins as a possibility. I think there are a number of 
of older Duke alums who, who would make a lot of sense on this bench. Chris Carrawell at least is a, is a step in that direction. He's not an old guy. He's only in his forties. I think he's like 43, 44 years old, but at least brings a little bit more experience to the table. And I think that's going to be really valuable for John Shire to be connecting to the older alums and administrators and people that, that he needs to run the program. One thing that was very insightful was the number of dominoes that did not fall or had to fall for this to happen. For example, John Shire, if he doesn't get his injury when he's with the Miami Heat, he's probably playing in Europe or at least has played a lot longer. His playing career would have lasted a lot longer, so he wouldn't have had as much experience as an assistant coach. Maccabi Tel Aviv. He would have played for Maccabi Tel Aviv for a long time, I bet. Yeah, and he could have he could have still been playing for all we know because again, he's only 33 years old. If you know he doesn't if he doesn't get the DePaul job or other jobs that he had been interviewing for, you know, does he leave then? Yo, Donald, but wait, wait, really quick. That's like, I really thought when, when the news came out that Shire was getting the job, sorry to interrupt you, but when the news came out that Shire was getting the job and and we thought back on him interviewing for the DePaul job, I thought that like the DePaul interview was like a practice thing for him. Mm -hmm. uh, You know, think about what, if he'd gotten the DePaul job, which was not a long shot, um, what would Duke have done? It. <laughs> it would have been crazy. Would have been it. a Bobby Kremens situation. Remember, Bobby Kremens went to South Carolina and then went, oh, wait, never mind. And came back to Duke. Would he have taken the DePaul job and then been like, wait, Coach K is retiring? I'll come back to Duke. <laughs> right. But at the same time, here's another one. I think this might be the most intriguing domino. They mentioned in an article that they had interviewed Tommy Amaker, who, is, of course, is the head coach at Harvard. Now, for him to, and he wanted the job as well, but Coach K realized that if he took Amaker as the next head coach, he would have to resign from Harvard and be an assistant coach and be the coach in waiting here at Duke. That was all full because we had, we, at that point when they interviewed him, uh, uh, Nate James had not left yet. John Shire was still there. Chris Carrawell was there. Oh, I'm sorry. And I'm sorry. Nate James had just left and they had just promoted Nolan Smith, which means that Nolan Smith was either had to have been demoted or someone would have had to have been let go from the coaching staff to make room for Amaker to be the next coach in waiting. That domino obviously didn't fall because they didn't want to break up the coaching staff. Here, here steps John Shire, who's already here, ready to go. I thought that was a very, very interesting nugget in that article that kind of, again, with all these different dominoes around, I thought that was the most intriguing. Yeah, I'm glad you picked up on that because I agree that the, the stuff about Tommy Amaker, and it really sounds like from this article, that Shire and Amaker were the only ones really strongly considered. It, it doesn't. It doesn't appear that they maybe even interviewed Johnny Dawkins or or anyone else for for the job. Um, and it and it makes some sense. I I, I think. You know, we we we've spent some time speculating about who you know. Oh, who's going to be Coach Case? Uh, Amaker's one that that makes a lot of sense. He's coached at the very very high level. He's had some pretty good success. At the very high level, he, he was very successful at, at Seton Hall and and reasonably successful at Michigan. You know, there were things that ran in, there were problems that happened there that weren't entirely his making. Um, in fact, were not his making at all. Um, so he's a guy who's shown he can recruit on on the big stage and he's handled a big program. So Amaker makes sense in a lot of different ways, and I think it's it's sort of interesting that the whole thing went went down the way it did. Um, and I don't know how much you know what would they have done. If Amaker had been like, yeah, I want it, and 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 they said he's the he's the logical choice, that you know, would they have said to Nolan Smith, hey, step back for a year, and then you'll be able to step in? I I don't know. It 
it, it, there, there are a lot of interesting things there. And don't forget that right after the announcement came out, Tommy Amaker put out a statement saying how excited he was for John Shire. So I, I actually think that, that there may have been an element here where they were trying to create as little bad blood as possible. Because if you want to go down the list of people that you would think would feel slighted by the way this happened, I think Tommy Amaker would be near the top of the list of people who, you know, it's not like he's Mike Bray, who's also like sort of towards the end of his career. Like Tommy Amaker is only, he's, he's like a little bit younger than that and, and could reasonably have taken this program for 10 or 15 years. John Shire, if he's successful, could be in this role for as long as Coach K was, um, which is much farther out than we should care to speculate. But Steve Wojciechowski has been a head coach, so he's he's got basically all the credentials that John Shire has, save for like he didn't win a national championship as a player. Chris Collins is, is in that same boat. He, he's coached multiple national champions and, and has been a head coach and has taken another program to heights it hasn't seen before. Yeah, in, but but, in, but I think I feel like Wojo... Who who got fired at Marquette? Yes, and Collins, who has who had a had a couple good years, but has struggled somewhat at Northwestern. I I think you can look at their performance. Same with Jeff Capel. You know, look at their performance and sort of go, eh, I'm not so sure. I don't think that's the same kind of case with Amaker. And and by the way, the, the name we haven't mentioned. And look, you know, I don't know what we're doing here, <laughs> getting into who because we already know who the coach is. But the name we haven't mentioned that I think probably could have gotten a call is Bobby Hurley. Um, because he's done pretty well at Arizona State. He has been a good recruiter. Arizona State's had some good years. I, I think on-court performance combined with recruiting, Amaker and, and Hurley sort of slot in next. One other, been one other name, by the way, that, that I think is, is, is incredible to forget is Nate James, who three months or four months ago, he and John Shire had the exact same job. And now looking forward, Nate James is the Austin P coach, which look, uh, Austin P is not Duke. It's a great job though. It seems like he's going to have a lot of support there. We talked about how Gerald Harrison's running the athletic department at Austin P. So there's a little bit of a, a Duke through line for, for Nate James in that program, but being the Austin P head coach is not being the Duke head coach. And, and none of these guys, by the way, my, my whole point was to say that all these guys could have been salty about it. And at least publicly, none of them are. And, and I feel like Duke did a good job of sort of managing the process. And, and you can see this in the way that the reporting came out in The Athletic is that Duke managed this process in a way that felt fair to everybody because it's not like John Shire in his telling or by other people's telling. It's not like John Shire felt like he was just the anointed one. Um, he still had to go through an interview process. He was still nervous. He wasn't going to get it. It sounds like he was shaken up from not getting the DePaul job a couple months ago. So, um, and he had I, the radio I, silence that, yeah, that exactly. You would the, expect the, the radio from that, si so. which, which if, if you've, I don't know if you've ever interviewed for a job and not heard, God, so frustrating, days, you know, oh, that yeah. feeling like, oh, like, yeah. I know I didn't get it. It's just, they just got to call me and tell me. So it, and there's one other thing three years ago, Jeff Capel's probably the front runner for this job. And he wasn't even really, it doesn't seem like fully, like fully considered. Before that, it was probably Wojo and Chris Collins. Before that, it was Johnny Dawkins. The evolution of the, 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 the successor, the leader in the clubhouse has evolved so much over the years. But it, it's really telling. I think that just the insightfulness of this. But I'll end with this. I commend Duke for doing something that apparently no one else could ever do and keep one of the biggest job searches in the history of college basketball a secret for so long like that is incredible that they were able to limit the number of people and the people and it doesn't seem like it was like a group of like 
four or five people who knew everything. It seemed like it was a pretty elaborate operation. A lot of people knew at least something about the process and nobody spilled the beans until it was right about to be announced, which I think is incredible. So uh, commend, and by the way, commend people for K, that. Even to the degree that like Coach K was obviously influencing the process. He, he knows all the people that were involved here, but he was not actually formally on the committee that was that was choosing John Shire. And so maybe mm-hmm. maybe that's all just for show. Um, but but it sounds like John Jackson was running the thing and that they and that they sort of ran it by the standard university protocol in which Coach K is not, you know, in the in the sort of hierarchy here, even though obviously he, he casts a very long shadow over the whole thing. So if you have a subscription to The Athletic, definitely go and read that article by Brendan Marks and Seth Davis. Again, very insightful, very powerful piece and something that, again, you're going to learn quite a bit about the inner workings of the Duke coaching search. But we will wrap it here for episode 323 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. A reminder, we had a couple of episodes today uh, as we record on Wednesday, June 23rd. Uh, go listen to the interview that we had with Len Simon about name, image, and likeness and the Supreme Court. Listen to that. You're obviously finished with this one. Uh, stay tuned. We're going to have more coming in the coming weeks, obviously with the NBA playoffs coming up. Uh, enter- we're entering the final season uh, or getting very close to it. The NBA draft will be shortly after that. The summer league will be shortly after that. But until then, for Jason Evans and for Sam Klein, I am Donald Wine. This is the Duke Basketball Report podcast, and it is time for the Duke Band to take us home.